It's been a long, hard slide into the Eddie's basement, though. <laughs> Just kidding. I could talk a lot about why I left, or not why I left, but why I'm back, and maybe why I left too, but I don't want to bore you to tears. It's not that interesting, other than to say that what happened was we left here, and I served on staffs of two large churches, and about three minutes after arriving at both, realized, well, these aren't Woodland Hills. This isn't Woodland Hills. And then I spent the next period of months trying to make it Woodland Hills and realized that wasn't going to work. And then we started praying in February about maybe just coming back to the real Woodland Hills, and I think that's going to work. So... We're here. I'm going to school full-time at Bethel this year to finally finish the degree I started about 100 years ago. And so I will have my seminary degree in June, and then I'll be officially, I don't know, what are you when you graduate? You're officially something. That's what I'll be. Unemployed. I'll be officially unemployed. Is that what seminarians do? Oh, no. Cool. All right, well, on that note, let's pray. God, I thank you personally for this place, um, this for me, as a place where you show up in powerful ways and where I experienced your transformation. And my prayer today is that uh, all of us here will meet you and will be transformed more into the image of your son. And we long for that and we need that. And so we come before you and just ask. We know you're here. We ask that you would touch us. And I pray that you would get me out of the way and speak your words to each person here. And I know you have an amazing ability to, to uh, tailor the words that I say to meet hearts where they are. And so I ask that you would do that. And I ask that I would stand aside and let you do your work. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. Well, how many of you came here today looking for something transcendent, looking for something bigger than you that maybe can solve your problems or help you do better or help you answer questions or solve the issues that are driving you crazy? Anyone? Did anyone come to church looking for something? Yeah. That's why I'm here. And I brought along with me Jesus. Take a look at the side screens. This is an example of the transcendent Jesus. Yes, there he is. Do you see him? He really is supposed to be there. This is a twisted tree trunk in Milwaukee. And this lady's got people traipsing through a yard because they found Jesus in the tree trunk. But I think it's a dog. <laughs> and maybe, you know those 3D things where you stare at it long enough and then it pops out at you? If, you try, if we tried staring at it, maybe Jesus would pop out. Maybe not. But supposedly Jesus is in the tree trunk. And if Jesus, if that doesn't work for you, then maybe Mary. Here's Mary on an office building in Florida, a little further south. I don't know why it's Mary and not just somebody in a robe, but I'm hearing that Mary showed up when they were doing some renovation on this office building. She showed up on the windows. And people have been making treks there to visit Mary. And if not Mary... How about, anyone know who that is? Oh, she says Santa. How about Mother Teresa? This is called the nun bun. I'm not kidding you. It was on t-shirts for a while, and then I think Mother Teresa got a little bit upset about that. But she's in Nashville. She's been shellacked, so hopefully she'll be preserved for some time. There are lots and lots of these holy apparitions that show up around the United States and around the world. There was Jesus in a fork full of spaghetti on a Pizza Hut billboard. I'm, I don't have that one with me, I'm sorry. On a dead priest's shoe, on a bowling alley chimney, on the fender of an 81 Chrysler. And on a regular basis, people find Jesus in their tortillas. Now, I checked. This is a non-Jesus tortilla. This, Paul Eddy is actually on this particular tortilla. <laughs> Woo, yeah. 
Why are we so obsessed? People line up for miles. The Florida office building had traffic going around the block in every direction for months to see Mary, the mother of Jesus, on the side of the office building. All of these apparitions, the nun bun has visitors continue to flock to visit the shellacked Mother Teresa. And I want to tell you about the Jesus that I found, because I found a Jesus too. What happened to me in my two and a half years away from here is it was really a desert experience. And sometimes Jesus takes us out of the oasis, which in my case was here at Woodland Hills, and throws us into a desert so that we can learn more about him and more about ourselves and so that we can suffer and be lonely and sad. And I did all of those things. And I, I don't know if I'm done yet. I'm really hoping. <laughs> Although he tells me I'm going to be unemployed for the rest of my life. So <laughs> the journey continues. Well, when I was uh, in Detroit in this lonely desert place, I did find Jesus. And I'll tell you what this Jesus looked like because I don't have a picture of him. This Jesus was, um, was not in real good shape. He was dressed in rags and he needed a shower. He was missing several teeth and he wasn't very articulate at all. Didn't have much to say. And he was sad and he was ill. And I think for me the saddest thing about this Jesus is that no one at all was lining up to see him. The cars were not stretched around the block. The seekers or the church people, nobody wanted to be near this Jesus. Well, this Jesus was on Five Mile in Detroit, which is the hood, in a way that I don't think there is in the Twin Cities. It's an absolute destitute area, huge amount of drug use, prostitution, drug selling, um, murders, and gangs. And there was Jesus on the street. And the way that I met him was because uh, I was on staff at this church called Kensington in the suburbs. And this church, when I say suburbs, I mean like suburbs. This was the third wealthiest county in the United States of America. And this is where I grew up. So I thought, oh, we're going home and our family's here. It's going to be great. And then we got there and realized, oh, Woodland Hills really screwed us up. We don't fit in here anymore. It was a very homogenous church and it was a great church. People were coming to Christ but they were all a certain sort of people and they looked really spiffy all the time and I didn't feel spiffy. I felt like I was in a desert and I felt like I wanted to reach out to people in need. And so what my husband and I did was got involved in a mission in the city of Detroit in this bad neighborhood. And my husband now two days a week spent, uh, before we moved, fixing houses in this neighborhood for people in need. And I got involved in a ministry called 70 times 7, which is that we got in a van and we, uh, every Tuesday night, three or four women, and we would drive up and down this stretch of five mile for three hours, and we would meet people and pray with them and give them food and give them toothpaste, because they really needed to have some teeth, and shampoo, because they needed that as well, and we prayed with them, because they really, really needed that. And this is where I met Jesus, on the streets of Detroit, in all of his need. And I want to tell you about a few people who I met and got to know quite well, who really um, embodied Jesus for me. And the first one is Tina. Uh, this ministry was started really to reach out to prostitutes primarily, so we were all women in the van. And then we got to know all of the people that lived in the abandoned houses, the bombed out houses in this bad neighborhood, and the homeless people on the street. And Tina was one of the first people I met, and she was a prostitute who was also a crack addict. 
And crack addicts do what you call a crack dance when they're, when they're on crack. And so whenever you talk to Tina, whenever you saw her, she was about six feet tall and she was dressed in rags, missing teeth, and she was just like this all the time. And she really needed prayer and she would come to us desperate and she wanted a sandwich and she needed some hygiene items and she really needed prayer. She needed prayer because she was desperate. And she was always like this to a greater or lesser degree. And when she saw the van, she would run after it because she knew that she needed something that was in the van. And we would pray with Tina and with her friends, this whole group of women who were addicted to crack and were selling their bodies because they needed to support their habit. And then I met a man named Jimmy. And Jimmy was a homeless person who would kind of move from location to location. And one time we invited him to a little prayer meeting we were having at the mission. And so at the end of this, we realized he, you know, he needed a ride home, which at this time was an abandoned uh, house that had been condemned by the city that didn't have any electricity or power. And so we put Jimmy in our van and, with our kids, and we got him some groceries, and we went back to his house. And it was about 35 degrees and pouring rain, and he said, hey, I have a kerosene heater hidden in this parking lot over here. He, he couldn't leave it in the house because someone would steal it. So could you guys get me some kerosene, you know, because then I'll have some heat. And you know, oh, gee, I wonder if we have time to help you out in this way. Well, yeah, we'll get you some kerosene. So we go dig through this pile of trash in the parking lot. He pulls out the heater. We go get some ca uh, kerosene and take it back to his house. And as we drive away, I mean, here's the kids. He also asked for $2 for some soap. I mean, this is the level of need. And so here we have our kids, and we're sitting in our nice van ready to drive back 25 miles to our house. And we're thinking, do, do we leave Jimmy here? Do we take a drug-addicted homeless person up to our house? This was the question every time. Do we leave? Do we pray with Tina and leave her here? Is a, is a sandwich enough? And it, the humility just grew enormous because you realized, I, I can't fix these problems. I don't know what my responsibility is. I'm doing something, but it would be safer to do nothing because now I'm tormented all the time. What am I supposed to be doing? And this was the case with all of the people that we ran into on the street. Sherry was dying of cancer when I met her just a few months before I moved here. And Sherry kind of didn't exist as a person because she was homeless, and so the hospitals would kind of stabilize her, meaning she could walk, and they would send her on her way. And her cancer had spread everywhere, her kidneys had shut down, her body wasn't working, she was bloated, and she was so in fear of dying, and she was in so much pain that she was drinking, every waking hour she was drinking to kill the pain. And this last time I saw her, she said, I, I'm so afraid to die. I don't know what's going to happen. And through this conversation, I was able to, to lead her to Christ and then to say to her, in a short time, you're going to be in a place where you have a bed, where you don't need to worry about the dangers out on the street, where you have a place to sit down and have a meal, and where you don't need health insurance. And as we drive away, and she's saying, I, is that true? Can I really hold on to that? And we're saying, yes. And you drive away again, and you think, what, is, what else is my responsibility? I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And then I think the people I got to know the best were Ramona and her sister Carla, who lived in a house with each of their kids. They were sisters. So they had all their kids there. And then they had their brother's kids because he was in prison. And then they had their mom, Rochelle, and then like two or three other adults, because you never really know who people are in these. There's just lots of people all the time in these houses, and they're kind of all just finding a place to lay down. So here we have uh, 12 children, Carla and Ramona and Rochelle, and three other people. This is 18 people in a 1,000-square-foot house that's ready to tip over, that has no working toilet or a bathtub. 
And so my husband spared a little time to at least resolve that issue. And a whole group of people came out and fixed their house, and we had a great opportunity to pray with them. And these kids, the 12 kids, when we would come, would just run up and jump on us, and they wanted to pray and tell the prayer request. And the little baby, the only word that he could say at the age of two was, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. And these people were seeking Jesus, and they knew that he was their only hope. They had no teeth, they had no insurance, they didn't have enough clothing, their houses were falling over, they had no house, they had no car, they had no job, they did not exist according to society, but they knew that they needed Jesus, even in the midst of their brokenness. And Jesus, of course, doesn't approve of all of their behaviors any more than he approves of ours. But they were broken and desperate, and when they saw us coming, they ran to us for a sandwich and to humble themselves and ask for prayer in the midst of their desperation. But nobody was lining up to see Jesus on these streets. We were 25 miles away from this place of abject poverty and people weren't lining up. The cars weren't streaming around the blocks with bags of groceries and with prayers. Now I say that Jesus was on the streets not just to be kind of cute and quaint and drive a point home. I say that because Jesus said something similar to that. Matthew 25 tells the story of Jesus in the end separating the sheep from the goats. And the sheep are the good guys and the goats are the bad guys. And the sh to the sheep, he honors them. And he says, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And they say, Lord, when did we give you something to eat or drink? We don't remember doing that. When did we do that? And in Matthew 25, 40, Jesus gives the answer. He says, truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. So Jesus says when we feed the hungry people, when we give them something to drink, when we visit prisoners, orphans, and widows, all these people groups that Jesus is very passionate about, we're really doing it for him. And I think that Mother Teresa embodies this better than anyone that I've known about in my lifetime. Not the shellacked nun bun, but the actual Mother Teresa. How else could she live a life of service like she did unless she understood that every time she helped someone, she was doing it to Jesus. Every time she reached out, she was reaching out to Jesus. Every time she met a need, she was meeting one of Jesus' needs. And that's how she saw it, and that's the way she was able to continue. My favorite story of hers is when a homeless person, one of her people on the streets of India, was run over by a car in the intersection. And he was kind of struggling out there and was injured. And this little four foot eleven Mother Teresa runs out and picks up this homeless, broken person. And she's trying to drag him off the street. And as she turns around, she runs into a priest who's come out to help. And she says to him, Out of my way! I have the body of Christ! This broken, homeless, destitute, toothless person. I have the body of Christ. Get out of my way. That's Jesus on the street. So it's an irony, really, because here I am raised in a very wealthy suburban environment, and now I'm hitting the streets in the hood, praying with people, broken people on the street corners who are made in the image of God. And we used to wonder, those of us in the van, I wonder if we went out to the suburbs and prayed with people on the street corners. I wonder what would happen. They don't need sandwiches, but certainly they need Jesus. So this would be like a suburb like, you know, Eden Prairie. So we're going to go to Eden Prairie in our striped blue and white van. And we're going to drive around and we're going to stop people on the corners and say, hey, can we pray with you about something? 
Okay, yeah, well, good talking to you. These people think we're insane. Well, is Jesus in the suburbs as well as in the city? Of course, Jesus is in the suburbs. Are people broken in the suburbs? Are we broken in the suburbs? Of course we're broken. We just look spiffy. Do we look spiffy? I am spiffy. I have teeth. I showered today. And so I don't need Jesus, right? Because I look, I've got it together. And as far as you're all concerned, I have it together. I am not broken, I'm spiffy. But when you look at people on the streets and they smile at you and their teeth are rotting and they smell bad and their clothes are torn and ripped and 50 years old, it's clear that they're broken. And I learned something really important from rubbing shoulders with Carla and Ramona and Jimmy and Sherry and Tina which is that we all have the opportunity to bring our brokenness outside. And only when we do that and admit our desperation can we really grab hold of Jesus. We need Jesus, even when we look spiffy. Because really what I realized is I'm no different than these street people apart from Jesus. I'm needy and broken and addicted. I'm a prostitute apart from Jesus. And this was so new to me. Because what it used to be was that me and Jesus are here looking spiffy and we have the answers and we got it together and over there are the broken people. And look, Jesus is calling me together. Jesus and me are going to go to the broken people. And what God showed me on the streets is that he was with the broken people. I met Jesus on the streets and he was calling me over here to admit my brokenness and to stand with the people who know how desperately they need him, not just on Sundays, not just in the midst of hardship, but we're all broken. I was raised in the suburbs. I know that people look spiffy but are broken. You can be both. And any time that I started to dig into the lives of my neighbors and really engage with them as friends and genuine relationships, I found they were broken. Are they broken, those of us from the suburbs? We're all broken, we all need. We just don't wear it on our sleeves. And that's sad, because if it's what's true, the ability to show show up with that authenticity is what can bind us together and what can help us to seek Jesus in a genuine and passionate way. My Detroit friends were so much more honest about it than I was ever able to be. I'm still sitting in the suburbs looking for Jesus in my tortilla. And they're broken and saying, but he's here on the street with us. And this brokenness rubbed off on me. You cannot rub shoulders with Jesus on the street and not be changed. And I started to see myself more accurately in my brokenness. And little by little, with baby steps, God is, was, and is transforming me. Now, I still have issues. I still like to think that I need several pairs of shoes. You know what I mean? I don't want only one pair. Because you kind of need some for different outfits. So this is what I'm doing in my head all the time, making decisions about resources. I need at least six pairs of shoes. And you know, my friends often on the street had no pairs of shoes. And they could show up with Jesus barefoot and say, I'm broken, I have nothing. And I can say, but I look spiffy and I have 30 pairs of shoes. And I don't want to be spiffy anymore. And this is what these interactions over the course of a year and a half taught me. It's a slow journey. I have one story that illustrates that I've made at least a minimal amount of progress, which is that one day on my way home, One night, on a Tuesday night, on my way home from the city, my husband usually calls me because he wants to make sure I didn't get shot and killed out on the street. 
So I got quite a ways home, and he hadn't called me still. So I called him, and I said, hey, I'm on my way. I got halfway through the sentence, and he said, I can't talk to you right now. We have a fire. And I said, well, are you okay? Yeah, we're fine, but I can't talk to you right now. So he hangs up, and I get home. And basically what had happened was we had an electrical surge that kind of blew up the house. Not, not blew up the house. <laughs> that would be really extreme. Blew up uh, the circuitry in the house and blew up the appliances. So all of our appliances, their motherboards fried. Did you know that your appliances have motherboards? <laughs> kind of high tech. So <clears throat> normally this would be, you know, kind of a big deal because it's right before Thanksgiving and Christmas, and I had no oven or microwave or dishwasher or washer and dryer, and they couldn't get the parts because the appliances were new and weren't supposed to be breaking yet, and so the parts were over in Asia. And of course, I was in Michigan, and so there was kind of a distance issue. So we had no appliances for almost six weeks. Now normally, and I hate saying this because it sounds too sexist, but the whole, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, you know that thing? It's kind of true, at least in our house. So I know my husband was a little worried because this was kind of a big deal, and I had my grouchy moments. But basically what I realized was two times a week we put our laundry in the car and we go to our friend's house and do the laundry. We borrow a microwave from friends because we have friends who have resources and extra microwaves. And, and this is the profound learning, you can wash your dishes by hand. <laughs> See, it took, a, it took a while to figure this out. At the end of the first week, every dish, every plate, every fork, spoon, knife, and ladle had been used and was on the counter. And I think it might have been my husband who pointed out, you know, we don't have to wait for the dishwasher to be fixed. <laughs> oh, we can wash them. So we did. I learned something new, and we washed all the dishes, and we did that for over a month. And this is, I realize, a very pathetic example of transformation. But you cannot, I had seen Carla and Ramona that night and their 12 kids in their little house that was heated by the gas stove because the furnace didn't work. You can't go home from that and then turn into a, snotty, spiffy, multiple shoe-owning person who's going to gripe about the appliances for the next six weeks. You can't. And so I realized that little by little, by me meeting Jesus on the streets, I was be tra being transformed into a different sort of person. And I admit, I have a long ways to go. But I realized at the same time that it was okay that I was broken and toothless and needed a shower. Because after all, that's what Jesus' coming here was all about. Jesus was broken and toothless. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was ultimately killed by the Nazis when he was in prison in Nazi Germany, said, God lets himself be pushed out of the world onto the cross. He is weak and powerless in the world, and that is precisely the way, the only way, in which he is with us and helps us. The Bible directs us to the weakness and powerlessness and suffering of God. Only the suffering God can help. And I would imagine that the prisoners in prisons today and the people on the streets today would identify greatly with this suffering Jesus who's with them in their cell. This God who suffered on the cross and understands what it means to be broken and weak. Well, there's another example of Jesus addressing these issues of brokenness. He's at a dinner. This is found in Luke 14, 12 to 14. He's at a dinner, probably with spiffy people. He said to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So he says, when you give a luncheon or dinner, 
Don't invite the spiffy people who can repay you, the people who are fun to hang out with. But instead, invite the broken, the lame, the poor, and the crippled. Invite those people. Now, I have a question for you. When we read that passage, who do you associate with? You see, I always associated with the party giver. You know, I have a big, nice house. I can have people over. And I can put out the china and put a spread out. But God's saying I need to invite the homeless and the poor and the crippled. Well, part of my journey has been to realize that I'm the poor and the crippled and the broken who's being invited by Jesus to his banquet and I can never repay him. See, it's both. When we were on the streets of Detroit in our blue and white van that everybody recognized, Tina and Jimmy and Sherry would look at the van and they would say, Jesus is in the van. And they would book down the street, Jesus is in the van, Jesus is in the van. We gotta get to the van. And those of us in the van, we would look out the window a couple blocks away and we would see Jimmy's back or we would see Sherry. And we would step on the accelerator and we would go, Jesus is in the street, Jesus is in the street. Jesus is in the street. And in the story that Jesus tells, we're the people who have been made whole and can invite the broken people in and they can never repay us. But we're also the broken people that Jesus is inviting to his eternal party and we can never repay him. And we never read further on, at least I never did read further on in this passage in Luke 14, because what he talks about next is the parable of the great dinner. And in the parable of the great dinner, the invitations have been sent out for people to come to this great dinner, and then the slaves are sent out to tell the people that dinner's ready. And everybody has an excuse. You know, oh, well, I just got married, so I can't come. And, well, you know, I've got to uh, get my appliances fixed, so I'm too busy right now. And everybody has a reason. I've got to take the laundry to the laundromat. I've got stuff I've got to do. I can't come right now. And they keep going and inviting more and more people. And finally, who shows up? The broken and the sick. And the parable of the great dinner is about Jesus' ultimate kingdom, where in order to get in, you have to come to Jesus and say, I'm broken, and I'm poor, and I'm in need, and I, I may look spiffy, but I'm not. I need you. And so Jesus is in the van, and Jesus is in the street. And Jesus is giving a party and inviting us, and Jesus is asking us, to give a party and invite those in need. We're both. And I'm guessing that each of you has a harder time with one or the other of those. Some of you don't feel whole enough to reach out. You don't know that Jesus' wholeness makes it possible to reach out and extend a hand to a neighbor, to a homeless person, to someone in need. Jesus held a very high value in terms of our service of reaching out to people in physical poverty and in desperation, those in prison, the widows, the orphans, the hungry, the homeless. And you haven't thought yet beyond your own pain to reach out in Jesus' name. And some of you are like me, which is that I'm more than willing to spend a few bucks and reach out and give a meal to someone or invite them into my home even. And it's harder for me to show up and say, but I'm broken, but I'm just like this prostitute, really, without Jesus. I'm desperate. I'm not whole without him. 
And I'm guessing that for many of you here, like me, that's the harder thing to say. We still kind of want Jesus to be kind of around, our arm around Jesus, and we're walking together to the poor and destitute, and we don't realize that Jesus is with the poor and destitute and is inviting us to acknowledge our true state apart from him. And even if we've already done this by praying to receive Christ, there's still a part of us that continues to think, but we really do have it together. We really do. We've got our act together. We don't need Jesus that much. We need his death on the cross, but I don't need him to get out of bed today. But really, we do. Why do you think people follow around nun buns and Jesus on a twisted tree and drive by the billboard with Jesus in a fork full of spaghetti? Why do they do that? Well, we know that they're looking for something bigger than them, transcendent, something that will change their lives and transform them. But we also know that those Jesuses, those holy apparitions, don't ask us for anything. We can get a fix. We can get a holy fix, a Jesus fix. We can touch the nun bun and hope for something to happen. But this real Jesus, this Jesus on the street, this Jesus who died for us, asks us, I think, for two things. And the one is to reach beyond our own pain and become wounded healers and reach out to those who have no teeth. And the other is for us to kneel before him and admit our brokenness and our toothlessness and our need and admit that really we can never repay him. And that's what communion is about, which we're going to do today. That is what communion is about. Communion is about sitting down at a table together to celebrate what Jesus has done for us so that we'll have an eternal party with him. And so those of us who've decided to be broken before him and say, yes, I want to have this eternal party with you, get to sit down at communion on a regular basis and be reminded of that relationship. So for those of you who need to learn to reach beyond yourself, there are things here at Woodland Hills that you can get involved in. You can do kindness outreach. There's street ministries. But even bigger than that, my thing is, how about your neighbor? Your neighbor is in need, and your neighbor is struggling and suffering and may look spiffy and may have lots of shoes, but needs Jesus. Start there. And for those of us who need to be humbled and broken, this is what communion, which is all of us, by the way, this is what communion today is for us to lay down before Jesus and say, I'm broken apart from you. I sell my body on the street for drugs. I have nothing. I have nothing. Jesus, today as we come to your communion table, break us. Again, we are so proud. I am so proud. And I just ask that for each of us, we need a different word from you. We need a different touch, but we all know that regardless, we need to come before you as broken people in need of your healing touch. Always. And help us to see you as this mighty healer who lives on the street, who lives next door, who lives with us who loves us, who loves our neighbors, who longs to work through us to transform the world. 
and help us to pull up a chair at your table today, God. And in humility, confess that we can never repay you. And I pray these things in the name of this Jesus on the streets and on the cross. Amen.